6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, Dr. Chuck Missler's daily radio program connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler begins his session entitled, The Post-Exile History. We are in hour 10 of Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. And we're going to talk now about what's called the post-exile history. We had the historical books up to the monarchy, then we had the monarchy, then we had the exile, the captivity, and all of that. Now we're going to have the period of history from the exile, that is, when the return from Babylon, up until the end of the Old Testament period. And that primarily will involve three books, Ezra and Nehemiah, and also the charming book of Esther. We're going to touch on the decree of Cyrus. I made mention of it last time, but we'll focus on it for some special reasons here because it shows up in the book of Ezra. We'll talk about the book of Ezra, which has to do with the rebuilding of the temple, the book of Nehemiah, which follows it, which is the rebuilding of Jerusalem. I want you to be sensitive to the distinction. In Ezra, we're trying to rebuild the temple without the permission of being able to build the city wall. Nehemiah comes along and gets that permission, and so he solves a lot of the problems, the leadership problems, by doing that. And uh, the book of Esther actually occurs during the final years of the book of Ezra, but it's a separate book, and it happens to be in your Bible after Nehemiah. But it's a drama that is incredibly colorful. The more you know about it, the more colorful it is. But also, the text itself harbors some surprises that I think you'll enjoy. And we'll have a few remarks at the very end about the intertestament period, the period between the two testaments. Well, the book of Ezra, the building of the temple. Now, in, we talked about the, the Babylonian captivity, the first siege, the second siege, and the third siege that made up the, the, the took Judah captive. And the first siege starting the servitude of the nation, which ends with the decree of Cyrus that we're, we're going to explain here in a minute. So the book of Chronicles also ends with the servitude of the nation. The book of Ezra picks up where Chronicles left off. In fact, the verses overlap. Many people believe that Chronicles, both First and Second Chronicles, and Ezra and Nehemiah were collected by the same scribe. The desolations of Jerusalem, as I indicated, started from the third siege, and it ends uh, where the ne- book of Nehemiah really introduces the degree of Artaxerxes Longimanus. That, of course, triggers the 70 weeks of Daniel that we've just reviewed. But it actually happens. The the decree uh, takes place in the book of Nehemiah. So uh, Esther, as I say, occurs chronologically near the end of the book of Ezra, but we have it at the end of our Bible to avoid confusion. Uh, Daniel, of course, is speaking all through the Babylonian period and following. Ezekiel is transported in the uh, second siege. Haggai is the prophet that is contemporaneous with the historical book of Ezra. Nehemiah is contemporaneous with Zechariah and Malachi uh, in in his his years. That's a quick feeling of that. Cyrus is another one of these incredible leaders. 
He established the Medo-Persian Empire. His father was Cambyses I. He was the king of Anshan, or East Elam, Elam being the ancient biblical name for the forebears of the Persians. And uh, Cyrus's mother was Mandane, the daughter of Astagias, the uh, king of Media. So Cyrus is in an interesting position because he's half Mede and half Persian, which he trades on to weld an empire. But in 550 BC, he attacks his father-in-law, the wicked and corrupt Astyagus. And he captures the, uh, the, his father-in-law's capital, Ecbatana, without a battle. That's going to characterize his, he's a very shrewd guy. He, he captures most of his things without actually having military might, but not actually having a battle. And uh, very, he's a very modeled leader. Many people throughout the world, he's been fabled through uh, in some respects even greater than Alexander the Great for his, his um, diplomacy, his leadership, and so forth. He welded the Medes and the Persians into a unified empire that continued for over 200 years. Interesting guy, indeed, Cyrus the Great. I want to focus on the conquest of Babylon on October 12, 539 BC. His general captured Babylon without a battle. The Persians diverted the river Euphrates into a canal upriver. By then they had conquered several of the towns and the outlying towns and were able to uh, divert the water so that the water level fell to the, the middle of a man's thigh at Babylon, which rendered the flood defenses useless and allowed the uh, invaders to slip in under the gates and take over the city. There were residents that didn't know they'd been taken over for three days. No battle. Very important point. Herodotus is the he, was, he wrote in the 5th century B.C. He's considered the father of history, and he details a lot of this. But what's interesting, a few days later, after his general conquers Babylon, Cyrus makes his grand entrance, and when he makes his grand entrance, he's greeted by, guess who? Daniel, the elderly Daniel. And he uh, shows him a scroll that had been written 150 years before Cyrus was born. And there's a letter addressed to Cyrus in this scroll. I want you to imagine yourself Cyrus the Conqueror. This guy comes up to you and shows you this aged scroll that says, To the deep be dry, and I will dry up thy rivers. That saith of Cyrus. Oh, hey, there's my name, Cyrus. He is my shepherd. And he shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. Here it is again. What a strange thing to find in the Hebrew text. To his anointed? Strange word of a Gentile king. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him. And I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut and sunder the bars of iron. He goes on. There's a very humorous sidelight here because Belshazzar, when the handwriting of the wall is writing in Daniel 5, it says his loins were loosed. Now we didn't make a big thing of that because it's hard to talk about that in mixed company, but you get the picture. What's interesting, that was a public awareness, embarrassment. Because Cyrus recognizes that here. Because God says, I will loose the loins of kings. He probably chuckled. He knew exactly what he's talking about. What happened 12 days ago? 
God continues, says, I will give thee the treasures of darkness, the hidden riches of secret places, that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by thy name, am the God of Israel. God is writing this 150 years before Cyrus is born with the deliberate intent of getting Cyrus's attention. Notice the next verse. God says, For Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel mine elect, I have even called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. Can you imagine Cyrus as he's reading this thing? I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me. Now, it's, it's tragic to have to cut this off. If you read this in Isaiah 44 and 45, God goes on with this incredible declaration of God's own greatness. It's one of those rare places in the Bible where God argues for himself. It's outstanding. But we will go on here. Cyrus, of course, was impressed. Wouldn't you be? So he frees the captives. He discovers that the, among his, his, his uh, things he's captured here are Hebrew slaves. And he turns them, he not only turns them loose, he gives them financial incentives to go home. He makes donations to make the temple, to help the temple get built. And he returns to them the vessels that had been plundered 70 years earlier by Nebuchadnezzar that were used as party tools in this uh, party 12 days ago. He gives them to them to, for their temple. And his incentives... Now, less than 50,000 take advantage of it. Many of the Hebrew captives have found a home in Babylon. They're happy to be there. But less than, just a little under 50,000 pick up and go back to rebuild a new life in their old city. Now, if you go to the British Museum in London, go there and look up the Cylinder of Cyrus. It's there on display. It's about that long, about 12, 15 inches, if my memory serves me correctly. It has the translation where he brags that he conquered Babylon without a battle. I mention that because we're going to later on talk about Babylon in one of the subsequent sessions, how Babylon is being rebuilt today, and that because of Jeremiah 15 and 51 and Isaiah 13 and 14, Babylon has a destiny to once again emerge as a major capital to be destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah was. Never, that's never been done. Many of your Bible helps are wrong. They say, well, that happened in 539. No, it didn't. Babylon was conquered by the Persians, but without harm. It's a capital, a secondary capital for Persian Empire for 200 years until Alexander conquers the Persians. And Alexander makes it his capital until his four generals, when he dies, the four generals divide up the empire and by then another cities become more relevant and Babylon gradually decays. It atrophies. But as late as the 1800s, the archaeologists were able to hire locals to help build. Uh, to, to help excavate. In other words, it, it hadn't been destroyed, there's no inhabitants, and all the conditions that are described in the other prophecies. So, anyway, oh, uh, without a battle, he entered the town, sparing any calamity. I returned to sacred cities on the other side of the Tigris, the sanctuaries of which had been ruins for a long time, established for them permanent sanctuaries. Also gathered all their former inhabitants and returned them to their habitations. So it's an illusion that is consistent with what the Bible says. And you find this decree also recounted in the opening verses of the book of Ezra, which is why we're getting into it. Thus saith Cyrus, the king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, 
and he hath charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God, which is in Jerusalem. Notice the focus of this is the temple, not the city. That's the difference between Ezra and Nehemiah. We'll talk about the city when we get to Nehemiah. In Ezra, they got permission and money to go back and build a temple, and they struggle. They don't get very far because they're harassed by all kinds of adversaries. They don't really get, it's a very discouraging time. Haggai, the prophet, keeps talking about for them to get their act together and keep at it, but it's an uphill battle. Ezra is probably the author of 1st and 2nd Chronicles also, not only Ezra and Nehemiah. All of this was regarded as one book earlier. Ezra is sometimes assumed to be the, 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 the credited with establishing what we call the canon, the, 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 the basic foundational documents of the Old Testament. About 49,697 returned in 536 B.C. About 80 years later, under Ezra, we had another couple of thousand that joined. In 515, we have the temple finally rebuilt, not quite finished. In 558, we have another couple thousand under Ezra. All this is in the book of Ezra. The book of Esther occurs approximately 483 B.C., we figure. So it's in, the, in that era that we explore Esther. And without Esther, we'd never have the temple. We'd never have anything else. You'll see why when we get the book of Esther. It's far more important historically than most people realize. In 445 B.C., that's 13 years later, of course, after the other one, that Nehemiah obtains the authority to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, build the wall, and protect themselves against their enemies. And that's the big event. And that's the one that triggers, of course, the 70 weeks of Daniel. Now, as we're talking about the temple, and that's really what the book of Ezra is all about, it's interesting to notice that in the New Testament, it says you are the temple of God. Right? Did you realize it said that seven times? Now that caught my attention. My wife pointed that out to me. Seven times. You are the temple. Now that may just be a figure of speech because we're the temple of God in the sense the Holy Spirit dwells in us, and of course that's true. But it turns out there may be far more significance in the architecture of the temple to enable us to understand our internal architecture. The great commandment, defined by Jesus Christ, quoting from Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And by the, the one Lord, the word there is Echad, not Yashid. It's one in the sense of like a bunch of grapes. It's, a, it's unity. It doesn't mean there's one God. It means that it, God is in unity. It's a, it's a, there's, you can find the Trinity in all of this, but I'll keep moving here. O Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. And when Jesus quotes it, he adds thy mind, right? All thy strength and all thy mind. So here it's uh, three things, and Jesus mentions four. But the point is, what does that mean? That's the greatest commandment. What does that mean? To love God with all thy heart, as opposed to all thy soul, or with all thy mind. How are those different? Those are terms we throw around rather loosely. These are actually, you see, the real you is not hardware, it's software, using modern vocabulary. And how do you determine the architecture of software? You can't do it, you can't determine the architecture by external behavior of software. You have to have the owner's manual. 
There are different words. Um, the word heart, cardia in the Greek. The word soul, suki in the, in the uh, Greek. Spirit, pneuma. And each one of these has a Hebrew equivalent also. Heart, soul, spirit, mind. There are places in the scripture. My wife spent 20 years tracking down every use of every Greek and Hebrew word that relates to any of these things, plus a few others. And made some, a number of discoveries that I uh, uh, lean on heavily, just a, a, rather exciting. The word mind is the most leading of all, probably, because we think of the mind as brain. No, the mind is far more than the brain, even, even neurologically. But it actually is the channel for, uh, or willpower, it's, it's, it comes close, to, that's where you exercise volition. But if you look at the, the, the temple, the original tabernacle, we studied that when we were in Exodus. But when you get to Solomon, God appears to Solomon and gives him some additional details. Some things are in the temple that are not in the tabernacle, namely, among other things, the two pillars, Jachin and Boaz, which carry nothing. They're pillars with no weight on top. And you have this strange porch there. Everything inside the temple is gold, everything outside is bronze. So everything outside is bronze because it, 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 uh, it can deal with sin and judgment and so forth. Inside is holy, is pure. That's the concept that underlies all this. And around the temple we also find there are these wooden chambers. And each one of these has some provocative possibilities. These, per, these wooden chambers were the private storage places of the priests, where they could store their personal implements, including idols or whatever. Their secret private little chambers. And obviously there are cases in the scripture where they needed to be cleaned out. So do ours. See, the Holy of Holies, of course, is the inner thing. The holy place is the precedent to that. And then you have this porch, this strange place called the porch. Then you have the inner court and the outer court. These are the elements of architecture of the temple. My wife was the one that really explored the possibilities that these represent our architecture. The outer court represents, say, the body. The inner court, the soul. The heart is the holy place, in a sense. And the spirit is in the Holy of Holies. And the great mystery, of course, is we know God dwells within us, right? Why is it we can't tell by your behavior? If God dwells in you, why is it that we are so honorary, so self-willed? Because that doesn't mean He's not dwelling in us, it means we're throttling His ability to, to work through us. And that's, what, that's why this is all so relevant. And we, it's, it, we are faced with our willpower. Are we choosing His ways? The making, are we making faith choices or self-choices? If we make faith choices, God will align our desires to our choices. But we choose first and feel afterwards, if we're walking by faith. I'm oversimplifying. If, if my wife has done a trilogy, The Way of Agape, Be Transformed, and uh, Faith in the Night Seasons, that deal, that expand this in practical, personal walk terms. So that the Holy Spirit can shine out of us if we let Him. We constantly throttle Him by our self-will. It also leads to this interesting thing of the chambers, which look like they are correlative to the subconscious. And the subconscious is not a Freudian concept. He was very much absorbed with that. It actually goes way back to Augustine and earlier. It's in the scripture in a dozen places. I won't get into that debate here, but simply to say that 
you need to let the Holy Spirit help you clean out our closets. All of us. Because if not, they will invisibly affect our behavior. Well, let's, get, let's move to some more fun stuff. The book of Esther. The name Esther means something hidden. I do understand some Hollywood stars have adopted that name. I wonder if they know what it really means. But anyway, in the kings of Persia, we're going to move down and pick up a guy by the name of Xerxes. He was the Ahasuerus of Esther. He's quite a character, very colorful character. The Greek translation of a very complicated name to pronounce is uh, the Greek translation is Xerxes. The English adaptation of the Hebrew is Ahasuerus, but the same guy, we believe. But he was a... Um, quite an impulsive guy. Uh, he had a, he very, very passionate extremes. He had gigantic ideas and very imperious temper. He actually built a bridge over the Hellespont, the Dardanelles. When a storm took it down, he ordered 300 uh, strokes of scourge on the sea for doing that, and uh, threw a pair of fetters in the sea. And uh, then he had the builders of the bridge beheaded as if it was their fault. There was a guy named Pythias who was a Lydian. He was offered a sum of five and a half million whatever towards the expenses of the military expedition. Xerxes was so impressed that he sent the money back and gave him a handsome present. And yet, when Pythias wanted his eldest son excused from an expedition, Xerxes was so upset by that that he cut him into pieces and had his army march among the pieces. The picture you get of Xerxes, he's very chimerical. Up one time, down another, very hard to predict. And we see that temperament in the book of Esther. And so uh, he built a canal through the Isthmus of Athos. He built the bridge over the Hellespont, as I mentioned. And he is the, this is the wild man that is the ruler of the world during the days of Esther. Now the drama that occurs is second to few in all of history. The king throws a lavish royal banquet, and during that banquet he asks his queen Vashti to immodestly reveal herself in this drunken revelry uh, that's going on, and she refuses to do that, to her credit. But because she refuses to do that, she forfeits her crown. The other nobles are so incensed, and they feel that by her not obeying the king, that's going to cause all the wives to stop obeying their husbands, got to make an example, so the king he, Vashti loses her place as his queen. But that sets the opportunity for Esther. And uh, she's an orphan Jewish girl, raised by her cousin Mordecai. And she ultimately gets selected as a replacement for Vashti. So she becomes the queen of Persia. Mordecai, who has raised her, is smart enough to warn her, don't let him know you're Jewish. So that he doesn't know that, and she doesn't call attention to that. For in her situation, that's going to be a time where it's going to be life-threatening. Now, there's a little incident that occurs early in the book that seems incidental, but it turns out to be very important. Mordecai somehow finds out about a plot against the king. And Mordecai tells Esther, and from that, this plot is thwarted, the guys are apprehended and killed, or whatever. And uh, it's just an incident, unrelated to everything else, and it turns out to be very pivotal. Mordecai never gets acknowledged for that, but God, it's one of those things, God's timing is phenomenal. We watch what happens here. To really understand what's going on here, you really need to know the rest of your Old Testament. Way back in 2 Samuel 16, 
there's one of the descendants of Saul that's harassing David. And his men want this guy squelched. And David says, no. Let him, if, if, if he's cursing, let him curse. He spares Shimei. Because he spares Shimei, one of his descendants is Mordecai, who's on the scene in Esther. Got the picture? It gets deeper than that. He was a, see, Mordecai was a descendant of Shimei, of the house of Kish, the father of King Saul. So Mordecai is a product of David's grace, right? Get the picture? Yeah, wow is right. As you understand how this all ties together, it really blows your way. Now he's going to ultimately confront the villain of the whole story, Haman. Haman is a result of Saul's failure to follow God's instructions. See, Haman hates Mordecai because Mordecai refuses to bow to Haman. So Haman, is, Haman has a vendetta against Mordecai. That's the plot of the whole story. But what you've got to understand, see, this whole story is the flesh versus the spirit. This goes way back to Jacob and Esau. Remember when they were struggling in the womb? And uh, Amalek descended from Esau. Amalek fought with Israel at Rephidim. And uh, the doom of the Amalek, Amalekites and Edom are foretold by Balaam in Numbers 24, by Moses in Deuteronomy 25, and the whole book of Obadiah deals with this. Edom represents the flesh versus the spirit. Now when we get to Saul in 1 Samuel 15, he's instructed by God to destroy the Amalekites, which includes the king, Agag the king. Saul spares the king Agag, the king of the Malachites. And when Samuel finds that out, he's really upset. What's all this, what all these sheep being? Saul has taken spoil rather than wipe it up. Because Saul didn't do what God told him to do, the kingdom is taken away from Saul. You've been listening to Dr. Chuck Missler, teaching through his series entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, here on 6640. If you would like further information about materials available from Dr. Missler, please contact us through this station, or visit our website at khouse.org. Until next time, when Dr. Missler continues this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.